From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Success on the field is great, but ultimately, the focus always shifts to what's next. On today's show, we'll answer some of those questions at the 30,000-foot level with Athletic Director Scott Strickland, as well as get down to the nitty-gritty of recruiting by discussing an outstanding haul for Dan Mullen and his staff in the early signing period with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. And not to be forgotten in all of the off-the-field hoopla, we'll also catch the latest news on hoops with senior writer Chris Harry. But first, momentum continues to build for the football program at the tail end of year two under Dan Mullen, and few people are happier about it than the man who brought him back to Gainesville. So to open a wide-ranging conversation about the overall state of Gator athletics at the halfway mark of the season, we asked Scott Strickland how he's enjoying football's ascension. It's been a lot of fun to be a part of um, the last two years, and certainly there's a, there's a sense of momentum that you know, begins with winning, but really begins before that with uh, structure and discipline, accountability and organization, all the things that that Dan does such a good job of. You see it and a lot of players have been developed at a high level. Um, But, you know, the winning is a big part of it. And then seeing Gator Nation kind of uh, reawaken, if you will, not that it was ever not there, but just kind of take it to a different level. And, you know, some of the game day atmospheres we had in the swamp uh, in 2019 were off the charts. I mean, they were as good as, as anywhere you'd ever see uh, at any school and really made a huge difference in, in the team being undefeated in home games this season. All that's great and it creates great momentum and it's something that, you know, has to be continued to be built upon and, and I'm confident that's going to happen. Fans get to see what happens on the field, but but not much outside of that. You've been around a lot of programs, so you know what success looks like and how you get there. What are some of the things you've seen behind the scenes that have contributed to their success to this point? Well, some of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, the organization, the structure, the accountability that's put in place. You know, I know our fans are well aware of the job that our strength coach Nick Savage does, but it's, you know, any football team's season starts in January in the weight room and continues through the summer. And, um, you know, Nick does a great job of kind of molding the work ethic and, and the expectations of, of what the program has to be about, you know, so I, I see those little details, the, the buy-in, uh, you know, guys taking ownership in the program, which is really critical, but there's still some room for us to improve in that area as well. I mean, we've, um, and, and this is just part of the natural evolution of building a program. You know, we, we've had some good leaders among our players, but I think there's, there's room for us to, to develop more leaders and stronger leaders, which I think is going to be the difference between where we are right now and where we want to be winning championships. When a team has great coaching but is led from within, that's really a powerful thing when you have a bunch of talented young people that, that have that set up. Uh, so I feel really good about where we are. I feel I feel even better about where we're going to be because I think in time we're going to develop those young men to, to be the kind of leaders they need to be to – to really make us successful. So this was your second year on the college football playoff committee. In what ways did it differ from last year? And was it easier, so to speak, this season because of how the the results shook out in the end? 
you know, it's very similar to last year. You watch a lot of games and, and then you get together the last five or six weeks of the season and intense conversations with people who care about, you know, the game of college football and have followed it intently. And, uh, and, and then you, you know, you try to make the best decisions for the sport and, and for the teams involved to be as fair as possible. And so it was, it was a very similar process. Um, I know the outside perspective is it was, uh, uh, because of the makeup of the teams and the records and, and, you know, it seemed like it fell the way the public thought it should. But I, I you know, I, I think we, I think the committee got it right this year. I think the committee got it right the first year I was on it. And that's because we have a lot of dedicated people investing a lot of time and energy to, to do the best they can to make sure it is gotten right. I know talking to people leading up to the selection Sunday there, um, the idea was, okay, well, if this, this, and this happens, then it's, you know, it's, it's easy because it just works out perfectly. There aren't difficult decisions that have to be made. What are those conversations like, even when it does seem so cut and dry that you guys still had to labor over throughout the process? Well, two things. Number one, uh, the committee never speculates. So while the media and everyone else is saying, well, if this happens, that happens, this is going to be the scenario. We we never consider any of those scenarios until we actually have results in front of us. And and once we have results in front of us, there's a lot of debate, even when it seems obvious, there's debate on let's make sure that this is right. Let's, you know, someone make an argument for why this isn't right. Is there anyone who will advocate for a different point of view here to, to challenge our thinking to make sure that we're handling this the right way, which I think is healthy, you know, any kind of. Anytime you have a, a group of people who are just thinking one way, you're probably not going to get your ideal outcomes. And so the, the fact that we have different views and different opinions, I, I think that really makes the committee stronger. So you've been on the committee for two years now. In both years, the Gators are also going to a New Year's Six game, which is one of the things that the committee helps determine. Uh, this is kind of a new phenomenon where you hear people refer to non-playoff games as meaningless because players are skipping them and, and you know things like that. Can you speak to the magnitude and the importance of playing in games like the Peach Bowl and the Orange Bowl and the impact that they have on the program? Well, I, you know, I think those bowls are the New Year's Six Bowls have kind of carved out a unique niche, you know, in the postseason lineup. Uh, certainly, everybody wants to be in the playoff and there's a ton of attention put into the playoff games. But New Year's Six, those other four games, I think they're treated differently. If you look at the TV ratings, they're viewed differently. Um, you know, beyond that, I think college football needs to, to really address our bowl lineup. And, you know, as I continue to be with what's best for our college football and the sport, because, uh, you know, you, you see crowd attendance not being as strong as it once was for those kind of games. And you see kids sitting out a lot of those kind of games. And, and, and so it just makes you question, is that the, the right kind of postseason for this sport? That's a deeper intellectual conversation for another day. But uh, I do think being in the Peach Bowl a year ago, being in the Orange Bowl this year, those are still bowls, even if they're not playoff games in the years that you're in them. Those are still significant games. They're kind of tentpole programming, if you will, for for college football fans in the postseason. And we got a huge bump coming off of the Peach Bowl last year, winning that game over Michigan, going into the offseason with a lot of a lot of energy. And uh, we have the opportunity to do the same again this year, going down to Miami. We have the added benefit that it's it's in our state and it's in a South Florida is a place where we have a lot of Gators. And so uh, that's an added benefit for this season. And you talk about getting fans in the seats. I know that's something that you've continued trying to improve in the swamp to make that a game day experience that people really value and think about. And that means every year you're trying new initiatives, rolling out some new ideas. Looking at what you did this past season, 
what did you feel like worked really well? And what are some things that you're still looking to improve on? You know, some of the things, a couple of things that are really significant this year that were new. We have, we had about uh, nine different initiatives, um, everything from the uh, the swamp head tailgate out in, in the North Lawn to um, you know some some additional food offerings at concessions. But uh, the to me the the really the three things that were super significant, um, and I'm going to set winning aside because that's always the most significant <laughs> thing that fans engage. I'm going to set that aside. Sure. Uh, and and not to diminish it, but just uh, th- those aren't things that our staff who work on these initiatives can can handle. We leave that up to the coaches and players. But the number one thing is the first year we had our, our Wi-Fi fully deployed for an entire season. And and that makes a huge difference where people can come and stay connected. Uh, and when we say they stay connected, that's not just we want people to, to be on their phone. Uh, in this day and age in our society, that's how people share their experiences. And we see a lot of value in fans walking in our stadium and having the ability to share their experience, not just with those who are with them at the game, but with those who aren't at the game. And, you know, those people become our best marketers because they're showing their friends how much fun they're having and what a great experience they're having coming to a Gator football game. So the connectivity piece was really big. Connectivity also allowed us to introduce our app as first year we had the app, which uh, allowed us to do mobile ticketing, digital ticketing, um, allowed us to uh, have fans be able to order concessions from their phone and then just go pick it up, not have to wait in line. Uh, in addition to a lot of other nice little capabilities out of that. So the app, I think, was was uh, a real plus for us this year. And then the, the, the third thing, and it's something that, you know, I never had a fan mention to me, so I don't know that anybody even noticed, but we stripped out 99% of all the on-field presentations this year during the game. We had We still had some pregame, and we did occasionally might have done one in a quarter break. But most of our timeouts were just fun videos and music and getting people excited. And you don't realize the impact that has on the game day atmosphere until you you just sit and observe and watch. But I I thought our staff did a great job of implementing that this year. It was a a real switch. Most schools, you go to their games, every time out, they're marching someone out there and introducing and making an (laughs) announcement. And it really just kind of. You don't realize how much that changes the atmosphere. So not having that and, and making it kind of a fun party scene during timeouts, I think, really create energy, which when play started back, our players fed off of. Looking at 2020 and what you're thinking about for next season, what are some of the things that have popped up in your conversations about making the Swamp an even better fan experience? We have a group that sits down and, and will come up with our initiatives. We haven't gotten into that yet for 2020 yet. We'll usually start in January and meet on a, on a weekly basis really to ramp up for the next season. Um, obviously there's some things that, that we know that are long-term challenges that we have the opportunity to get better in. One is our, our video boards uh, in the South end zone. It needs, we need new pixels. We need brighter, cleaner, crisper um, in the North end zone. We need bigger and, and newer. We need a new sound system in the swamp. Um, so those are those are two low. You call them low hanging fruit. They're they're pretty uh, intense capital outlay. Uh, mm-hmm. They're the i.e. they're costly to implement. But that's something that that we know we've got to address um, in the in the near future. I don't think we'll have that by 2020, but maybe by 21 we can have that. Uh, we can have something done there. Um, and the same thing with just the basics of you know. There's an old saying: if you have good food and clean restrooms, people want to come to your event. 
And, um, you know, we've got to always, that sounds like really simple stuff, but it's, it's kind of uh, like blocking and tackling in game operations and fan experience piece. So we'll continue to look for ways to, to improve those areas. And some, sometimes that might involve uh, physical changes to those areas. And sometimes it may be things like I mentioned with the app where you could order your food ahead of time and not have to wait in line and, and save some time for the fans that way. There's been lots of news the last few months in regard to football scheduling and some very competitive and unique matchups coming up in the future, in some cases the distant future. Um, I, I guess, can you take us through the process for how these come together? I'm assuming it isn't just the uh, the Twitter crowdsourcing that you do, but uh, how, how, do these, how do these matchups come together when you're talking about teams that the Gators uh, have really never played during the, the regular season? Um, you know, it, uh, as you can tell by the how far out these games get scheduled, um, there's no quick fixes. Um, so you have to really work years in advance, unfortunately. It's the way college football scheduling works. I think the three most important things for creating a great game day experience, number one is having a successful team. Uh, number two is having uh, making your venue as fan-friendly as possible. But number three is having the kind of content that fans want to come see. And by content, it's really quality of opponent. And so, you know, the the scheduling piece is really part of getting fans engaged in making game days at the Swamp elite. And so I, th- I guess of the games we've scheduled against Power 5 opponents coming up, the earliest one is going to be Utah uh, coming to Ben Hill Griffin Stadium in 22. We return that game the next year in 23. Uh, 24, 25, we have a home and home with Miami. And then we, you know, going out years, we have Arizona State, we have Colorado, we have Texas. And we've got a number of, of others that we're working on in that 26, 27, 30, 32, and beyond kind of things that uh, we hope to announce here in the next few months. Um, so I just, I think the fans want to see good on good. Student athletes want to play in games where they're playing other quality competition. Um, they don't want to play the cupcakes. The fans don't want to see the cupcakes. And I think we've got to be adapted to that. And, and I'm part of the reason for, for me going out on social media and kind of making that declaration about scheduling is the more teams that are willing to go out and schedule that way, the more opportunities the schools that want it to schedule that way have to find partners. And right now there's a lot of schools that want to schedule, play their conference schedule and then schedule just one more power five opponent. And that has been traditionally what Florida's done. We played the SEC and then we played Florida state and, and that was been done. And we've gone out occasionally and played a Michigan or this year played Miami. But I think the model's going to change to where a majority of those non-conference games are going to become power five quality, good on good type games. And the more teams, more schools we can have taken that philosophy on um, the better product is going to be for the fans, the better competition, the players are going to be able to go up against and it's going to be better for the sport. I'm trying to think about, you know, being behind the curtain and, and what that's like. There's over 60 power five programs to, to what degree you can tell us this. I mean, are you just going through a Rolodex, the alphabetical order? Here are the people I could call. I mean, are, are you cold calling ADs? How does that process actually work? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just like that. You're, you're, uh, you know, sometimes you have a relationship with somebody, but sometimes, you know, you don't usually, it's not uncommon for me just to send text messages out to, to other ADs and, uh, you know, hey, would you have any interest in doing a home and home with the Gators? And it's interesting. A lot of times I get I get a, if they're not really interested, I'll get a tepid response. If the AD is interested, they'll say so. But they'll say I've got to check with my coach. And we've had I've had several where the AD is interested in doing it. And they come back to me a week later and say, we can't do it. 
Hmm. Um, and it's obvious they've gone to the coach and the coach doesn't want any part of it. It depends. You know, I had one school, a power five school approach us out of the blue and we were really interested and we were working dates and everything. And all of a sudden he just got shut down. He, the guy came, the AD came back and said, we, we're not doing it. So somebody, whether it was a coach or somebody got wind on their end and, and shut that down. So, um, that's frustrating. Uh, I got to give, uh, coach Mullen a lot of credit. He's, uh, you know, he, he has the same view I do that, that those games are good for, for Florida and they're good for the sport and they're good for our, our university. And, and that's what we, those are the kind of games we need to be scheduling. And he could very easily take a different approach there, but he hasn't. Um, and uh, our ch- the challenge is finding other schools and other coaches at other schools that have that same approach. And they're out there. Just It's not as prevalent as you would like. You know, when you're winning and you're successful in a short period of time, uh, rumors are inevitable about a coach maybe looking somewhere else. And in the last couple of weeks, rumors about Coach Mullen tied to the NFL have come up. And I know he's addressed him. And I'm not sure if, if you've had a chance to talk about it at all. But how do you deal with that when you've got someone who's really successful, who obviously other people are going to want, and in the age of social media, even one random tweet from, uh, you know, from an egg avatar can become a thing? How do you handle that just from a from a, a management standpoint, publicity, et cetera? You can't control what people say and, and you can't control speculation. You know, I think the, the first thing we do is we try to create a great environment that, that people want to be a part of in the UAA. And, and in our athletic program. And part of that, a big part of that is the relationships we develop uh, with our coaches. And the stronger those relationships are, the more the the more open the line of communications are. And so that allows me as AD to ignore ungrounded speculation, which is usually what is out there, um, because I know the truth and I know, you know, the real world. And, and the fact of the matter is we've got a great stable of head coaches across all of our sports um, and, you know, I know you're talking specifically about football here. You know, Dan Mullen's going to be the coach of the Florida Gators for a long, long time. And it's obvious that, that others recognize he's a talented coach. And, and people who cover the NFL beat or cover other colleges, they've got a, a produced copy. So people will click their links and, and read them and they're going to speculate. And I can't control that. I can't I can't make that stop. Right. And mm-hmm. so and the other thing is I can't predict the future. Right. So. Um, I, you know, I can't come out and say that something somebody speculates is never going to happen is never is an awful long time. I do believe that, that Dan Mullen's going to be the head coach of Florida Gators for a long time and it's going to lead us to a, a lot of success in the future. And one piece of that is the facility and, and the way that's coming together. And I know a, a big step in that process came in the last couple of weeks. We found out that Bill Hevner was going to be the, uh, the big donor that's going to be on that facility. Can you talk about the progress and where that's coming and also the importance of securing a major gift like that to make it a reality? Well, you know, we, we have a lot of boosters who have stepped up and supported our facility projects across the board. And Bill Hebner is a really special guy among that group. You know, all those people are really special, but Bill is really a special gator, um, super supportive incredibly positive, you know, has a great history of, you know, wanting the Gators to be as good as we can be, handles his relationship as appropriately as, as any supporter possibly could. He's very deferential, um, but he's also very passionate and very supportive. And, you know, I can't think of a, of a better individual to have their name associated with our football training center uh, than Bill Hebner. And so, you know, that's, that's been really special, but we have a lot of other really special donors as well. You know, we, we, um, uh, a guy who was, who has made a lot of contributions 
across a lot of different parts of our athletic programs. Gary Condren, his name is is going on the uh, indoor practice facility. Um, uh, and Gary is, like Bill, super supportive and passionate about the Gators and wants to see us do really well. And I can go down the list. I start leaving people off. But we, we're just really blessed in that way. And it's, it's going to allow us to create a uh, football training center that's, that's going to be uh, one of a kind and as good as any in the country um, and is really going to impact our football program and all of our programs because there's part of that facility that's going to be used by all 21 sports, all 500 student athletes who compete for the Gators. Um, it's going to allow us to provide them with with a facility that's going to benefit them for, for not just the next few years. It's going to generate, it's going to benefit Florida athletics for generations to come. And so that's, it's fun to be a part of something that's going to have that kind of impact. And, and we're very grateful for Bill. We're grateful for uh, the designers who have helped us get to this point and our staff who have worked really hard and diligently on the on the plans and uh, had a lot of input from everyone who's going to be a user in that facility, meaning, you know, the, the strength coaches, Nick Savage and his people, Coach Mullen and his staff. Um, we're going to have the dining hall for all student athletes. Our nutritionists have had a big say in this thing. Um, the equipment staff, the training, the sports medicine folks, everyone who is going to be in this facility has had a big hand in the design of it. Um, it's going to be really special and I cannot wait to, to break ground um, in a, in a few months this coming summer, we'll break ground on that facility. Once baseball moves to the new beautiful Florida ballpark, we'll break ground on the existing McKeithen stadium site. And two years from right now, which sounds like a long time, but it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, we were sitting here talking about uh, our new head coach, Dan Mullen, as you'll recall. So two years from now, we'll be sitting here, and, and we'll be walking in the brand new building uh, as the home for our football program. And that's exciting to think about. In terms of other things we've seen recently, we just found out in the last couple of weeks that the court at the O'Connell Center is going to be renamed for Billy Donovan, which I don't think is a surprise to anybody. The part I'm curious about is the, the discussions that led to this and, and why now was the right time. How, how do you come to a, a big moment like like this? You know, I, it just was seemed like the right thing to do at the right time to do it. Um, you know, Billy has been gone, it's hard to believe, almost five years. And um, few people leave their mark on an athletic program and a, and a university the way Billy Donovan did the University of Florida. And, you know, much like uh, the football field is named after Coach Spurrier, uh, appropriately so, you know, Billy Donovan had such a huge impact on, on Gator basketball, two national titles, all the Final Four trips, SEC championships. Um, and then just the way he represented the program, the university in general, um, such a beloved figure that, you know, we wanted to go ahead and do it. And, you know, we could wait. We could wait a few more years, um, but I didn't really see a need to. And, and as we had conversations throughout the administration of the university and the board of trustees and and, and others, um, there was a lot of support to go ahead and, and, and do that this year. Chris Harry told us a few weeks ago about how you tried to keep it all under wraps when you went to go visit Billy and share it with him. Um, but can you tell us about that trip and, and how you ultimately delivered the news to him? I'll preface all this by saying um, when I first came to, to UF three years ago um, and followed uh, the legend Jeremy Foley, you know, one of the first things Jeremy told me is, is at some point, you know, he would love to see Billy's name on the court. And it was something that he felt very strongly about. And I didn't need any convincing because I had the same view of Billy from the outside as, as everybody on the inside did. Um, and so Jeremy and I flew out to Oklahoma City to have dinner with uh, with Billy and his wife, Christine. And, and uh, 
asked Jeremy to set it up the dinner and Jeremy told Billy that, that uh, we were coming out to look at some facilities at o- Oklahoma and Oklahoma state. And we we're going to you know be there that night and wanted to just have dinner with them and catch up. And uh, which, uh, you know, we talk a lot of UAA about championship experience with integrity. So I, d- I don't know if there was a lot of integrity in, in the setup for that, <laughs> for that dinner. Uh, and Jeremy actually used that line. We had finally got seated. Jeremy said, Hey, I, I got, I got to come clean. That's not why we're here. We're here because the University of Florida wants to put your name on the basketball court. And so, you know, Billy was, uh, I think, really deeply moved and touched. And uh, it took him by surprise, which is is kind of fun when you can do something of that magnitude for uh, for someone and, and have them be taken aback by it. But I think that also speaks about the kind of, Billy, kind of guy Billy is and the humility that he's always carried himself with that that uh, he was genuinely surprised the University of Florida would want to do this. I'm, I'm thinking about this in my head, and I imagine, is, is it something like a, getting ready for a marriage proposal? You're nervous, like, what am, what am I going to say? How do I get to the right moment? I mean, were you guys, were you kind of trying to go through how you were going to actually do it when you got there? Yeah, we role-played it a couple times. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like when you're when you're doing all those things you talked about in life, you're asking the pretty girl out first time. You know, you practice it a lot, but, uh, when you get to it, you just gotta, you know, use the force. So that's, that's kind of what we did there. <laughs> um, looking toward the spring, we've talked about a lot of the, the big picture items going on right now. But what are some other initiatives that that you and your your administrative staff are going to be focused on as as we move through the second part of the athletic season? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier baseball moving into the new park after this season, but this will be our final season in McKeith, final baseball season in McKeithen Stadium, and. Um, that's, you know, we, we want to be uh, appropriately uh, respectful of what that venue has meant for the last three decades for, for Florida baseball. And so we'll, we'll have a lot of special recognition tied to that. And then, you know, spring is a great time uh, as the University of Florida in our athletic, our athletic program because we tend to have a lot of success just because of the great athletes and great coaches that we have in our spring sports. So uh, whether it's uh, track and field or swimming and diving or tennis, golf, baseball, softball, lacrosse. We anticipate teams, you know, competing at a high level and putting themselves in position to win championships. And and that is, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to follow. Uh, on top of all that, as you know, weather-wise, the spring is a great time to, to live in Gainesville. So it's a, it's a wonderful time of year that we always look forward to. But we also will, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be making plans for uh, the 2021 athletic year at the same time. And putting budgets in place and making plans and how we want the fall to look. And obviously, uh, you know, the infrastructure piece is really important as we wrap up the ballpark. Uh, as we start on the Hebner Football Training Center, um, we'll start turning our attention to some of the things we need to do here in the swamp. Um, you know, we, we have a, a real need for a, a clubhouse for our women's soccer team out adjacent to uh, Disney Stadium where they play their matches. Um, that's something we want to get started on here in the spring as far as uh, really getting serious about details and planning and designing and, and setting a timeline for that. So uh, it never stops. And we're always, um, you know, trying to look for ways of move the Gators forward. And we want to be prepared for whatever's on the horizon and make sure we're anticipating as much as possible. Before we let you go, you know, we always got to get some pop culture picks from you because honestly, the stuff you've given me has, has been great. You told me about Chernobyl and I did Chernobyl. I listened to the podcast. Uh, you got me on Business Wars podcast, which I just listened to yesterday, the entire series of Mars versus Hershey, the chocolate wars. So uh, I'm curious, what's the latest thing, whether it's a podcast, movies, what is on your radar here as we uh, 
as we get through the, the holiday season? You know, I had to, uh, before our, our, we taped this, I had to sit down and because th- I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> I, I don't you always do. Um, you know, one of the things about being on the uh, CFP committee is you have to watch a lot of games. I probably watch 15 to 20 football games a week. Wow. That really cuts into my pop culture time, the ability to, to catch up on what's going on out there. However, I've gotten into some streaming stuff like everybody's doing these days. And uh, I started watching the, the latest season of The Crown. I don't know if you've watched the first. This is season three, I believe, um, which is on Netflix, which is a really um, well done series. And I was, I had to be kind of, my wife got into it and, and I was, I was turning my nose up at the thought of watching it, but it is, it follows the British monarchy, um, uh, starting with basically when Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth was uh, put uh, on the throne. It's just a fascinating, um, series, but the, it's so well done. The acting is su- superb. So I highly recommend the crown I'm about halfway through the, the latest season. And then, uh, you know, uh, I guess this is the nerd in me, but I'm watching The Mandalorian, <laughs> and uh, I've gotten hooked on Baby Yoda. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of a guilty pleasure. It's not quite the same quality as The Crown from an acting or, or script standpoint, but it's uh, it's kind of a fun, mindless way to to spend 30 minutes a week. Mm-hmm. Well, while you're there, I, I've got one for you on Disney Plus, which I think you'll appreciate. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Imagineering story, the six-part documentary about basically how they created Disneyland, Disney World, and expanded internationally, the way they developed the rides, the technology. Really, really interesting stuff that uh, that is, I think is, is worth your time as you, you open up your schedule a bit now that the CFP work is done. You know what? I've watched that first series, and I actually have, and I don't know the... I, we'll be able to, to pull this off. I actually had the idea that the, the group I mentioned that gets together a dozen people or so that work on our, our game day initiatives that, that we should watch a different one of those episodes every week during the spring, just to, to get our creative juices flowing because it is, I, I thank you for mentioning that because I've seen the first episode and uh, I plan on watching the rest of that series as well. That's I'm always fascinated by people who have done those kind of things at such a high level. And certainly Disney is, is fantastic at it. Uh, I read, I think I've told you before, I've, I've read a lot about Steve jobs. I'm fascinated by the way he would market and present products. We can learn a lot from others who have had a lot of success in that space. Mm-hmm. Well, the more time we spend here, the less you have to to watch The Mandalorian, so we will let you go. But uh, thank you so much, as always, for your time, and, and we look forward to a very successful spring. Thanks so much, Adam. Take care, man, and go Gators. The rash of injuries this season highlighted the needs for Florida on the recruiting trail, and the staff certainly got to work in that regard, with an impressive haul on the early signing day that is being recognized unanimously as a top 10 class in the country. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott Carter to take us through the newest Rowdy Reptiles. Well, it was a, a class that really, uh, it kind of went according to script in a lot of ways. I mean, Dan Mullen said uh, that this there wasn't a lot of shocks or surprises. Uh, and he attributed that mainly to the fact that they had targeted a lot of high character guys that they thought, uh, would fit into their program well. They built and maintained those relationships uh, over the past several months or years even. And then when National Sign Day comes around, there wasn't a lot of guesswork uh, on their part. Uh, signed 21 players uh, as of this conversation. They may have another one later on. And they'll add some more on National Sign Day in February, Adam. But 
you know, you look at his class, there's there's three things that jump out uh, in the players they signed. Six defensive backs. Uh, that was a an area of need, obviously. They had some attrition after last signing class in that uh, area. Some of it unexpected. Then you're having a guy like C.J. Harrison who's already announced that he's leaving for the NFL. You're going to be losing a safety in Jawan Taylor. So while they had some young players get on the field this year uh, in the in the secondary, uh, they need more uh, for the future. And let's start with uh, Travis Johnson from uh, Bartram Trail High School over in uh, Jacksonville. The type of player that Dan Mullen's known to to recruit kind of undervalued on the recruiting trail until late when some other schools really tried to get in the mix and pull them away from the Gators. But by that time, uh, Florida had shown the most interest, had built the relationship. And, you know, the recruiting staff, some of them said that this kid has the best film of any prospect they've seen in quite a while. Uh, still, yeah, he's coming in as all these guys are. I mean, you don't know how they're going to immediately fit into plans, but I can tell you that he's a very physical player, uh, maybe the fastest guy they signed today in terms of just pure speed. I think he runs a about a 4-440 that's legit. So that's a nice guy to add back in the secondary. Some other names that – uh, to watch Ethan Pouncey uh, from Winter Park High. And if that last name sounds familiar, it's not only because they signed his brother today, a receiver, Jordan Pouncey, who's actually a transfer from Texas, a couple of years older than Ethan. Um, but, you know, you're going to have two Pouncey brothers on the team. And, of course, they are second cousins of Mike and Marquise, who uh, Florida fans certainly remember from uh, – uh, some good years when Dan Mullen was here as offensive coordinator. Another guy back there, Avery Helm from uh, Missouri City, Texas, not a state guy. Again, these are these are guys. Jahari Rogers from another uh, kid from Texas uh, who's coming in. Rashad Torrance from uh, Marietta up here uh, up in the Atlanta area. You know they added some in-state guys. They added some out-of-state guys. They swung a kid from Tennessee near the end. They flipped him, Mordecai McDaniel. Uh, kids from out of state, Fort Washington, Maryland. So you look at those six players, though. Uh, that's a lot of uh, a lot of talent to add in one class, and uh, it gives them instant depth back there. Uh, some nice pieces to move forward with. So uh, that was one example of a focal point for Florida. Then the other one, you know, you go from the secondary to the front of the defense on the f- defensive line, and then go over to offense on the offensive line. They really beefed up. Uh, on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, Adam. Uh, a couple of names to, to stand out there is Jervon Dexter uh, from Lake Wells, a defensive lineman, checks in about 6'6", 294. Another big guy up on the defensive line, Jalen Lee. He He's from Louisiana, was an LSU commit for a while. He's the biggest uh, newcomer on the defensive line, 6'3", 306. And then uh, on the offensive line, Joshua Braun is a name to remember. 6'6", 356. He's already he's from Swanee, Florida. And he's already uh, joined the program, at least for bowl practices, while they are here before they depart from Miami as an early enrollee. They've got three guys who fall in that category with him and the quarterback, Anthony Richardson from Gainesville. I'll talk to, about him more later. Another offensive lineman, uh, Richie Leonard. Those three guys have been on campus and actually have a, a few practices uh, under their belt already. So kind of a unique situation with those three players. Uh, but those offensive linemen, Mullen, just from the tone 
when he was talking about those guys, it sounds like they're ahead of maybe the curve uh, where the young offensive lineman who came into the program last year. So it's an area of need. So they built some depth there. I think they've added some talent. And uh, if you've heard it once, Adam, we've heard it a million times. The SEC is without question a line of scrimmage league. That's why the Alabamas and the Georgias and the LSUs uh, are playing for national titles consistently. And uh, Dan Mullen knew that was one area that Florida needed to uh, get better at. And uh, they put an emphasis on it. Certainly the lines of scrimmage are a concern, but also, you know, you look at this Florida team, what they're losing so much on the skill position side. You lose four senior wide receivers. You lose Jefferson. You lose Swain, Hammond, and Cleveland. You also lose the Michael P. Ryan in the backfield. So a, a lot of talent that's graduating for the Gators. In what ways were they able to address that in this class? Well, they had a couple of receivers, Jaquavi uh, and uh, Frazier's from Denellen. Uh He signed another guy, Adam, is uh, Finley Graham. And what stuck out uh, about him to me was that, you know, he's listed as an athlete. He's only five foot eight, 162 pounds. He's from Lakeland High School. Again, that's a, that's a school that has produced a lot of uh, big time Gators over the year, including the, the Pouncey brothers uh, who we mentioned earlier, Chris Rainey, Ahmad Black. So you look him up instantly, like, how's a guy like that get to Florida? Well, he's a great return specialist, had had some really impressive kickoff and punt returns in high school. So he'll be an interesting guy to watch, whether or not he can crack the receiver's mix or somewhere where he can get the ball in his hand. So, uh, and Jordan Pouncey, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Ethan Pouncey's brother, uh, again, he, he, he played at Texas, mostly on special teams. Uh, he'll be interesting to watch. I mean, with the way that they're losing Josh Hammond and Tyree Cleveland, what Van Jefferson and Freddie Swain. So there's some spots there where a guy with some experience and maybe uh, physically ahead of the curve a little bit in development could get on the field. So it'll be curious to watch that. But I think also, I don't think all the answers are there at that position in this uh, early signing period. I think you can look for the Gators to maybe add a receiver or two on the traditional signing day in February, or as Dan Mullen has proven very efficient at through the uh, transfer portal. Remember, that's how Van Jefferson and Trayvon Grimes both got to Florida. Uh, and I would not be surprised at all to see the Gators at at least one or maybe another uh, receiver through the transfer portal. You know, another position I think is interesting is uh, at punter. Because for, what, six or seven years, it's been a, a Townsend back there. And unfortunately for the Gators, they have uh, exhausted all of their eligibility between the two of them. And where Dan Mullen went to get a replacement is seemingly just a, uh, a fountain right now of punting talent all the way on the other side of the world down under, which got signing day started a little early for Florida this year. Well, you know, we don't talk punters on this podcast too much, Adam. But... We really should, though, shouldn't we? Yeah, you know, you mentioned the Townsends, and I mean, you got to believe that Dan Mullen probably called up Clay and Susan Townsend. And like, hey, guys, I mean, you don't have at least one more son stored <laughs> away somewhere. But, you know, Dan Mullen was open to, he's never done this before, but he was open to the idea of tapping into this Australian pipeline uh, that has become such a trend. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know much about it until they signed Jeremy Crawshaw, you know, the first signing of this class. And I started doing my research on him. And these guys are coming over and they're producing. And it's kind of a variety of, of players. A lot of them have been 
older players who maybe had played some semi-pro ball and, and was ready to, you know, get on with their lives and try to get a college education. And they took up punting and almost all of them have a history in, you know, Australian rules football. I mean, that's what kids grow up. That's what they play. They don't go out and play catch like we do here in the U.S. They go out and play what they call footy, which is basically kicking a ball around to each other, passing a ball and running and passing without it touching the ground. So they develop these punting skills, and then they enhance it by going to these kicking academies. I mean, it's really paying off. And, of course, we all know how college football works. Uh, if someone taps into something that is producing results over an extended period of time, other people are going to try it. So now that the Gators have gone down under, and uh, Jeremy Crosshaw, they, he's a little different in the fact that he graduated in December of 18, so he's more of your traditional college-age guy. So he'll come over and uh, early enroll and uh, get into the program in January and see if he can uh, put up some numbers like the Townsends did over the last uh, decade. Yeah, I was actually at the uh, the College Football Awards last week here in Atlanta, and uh, I want to say the guy who won uh, the guy who won the Ray guy was like a 27-year-old college sophomore. Yeah, he's a Kentucky guy. Uh, you know, funny story with that. When I was talking to some people in the Florida football offices about Crosshaw, they actually, when they played up at Kentucky this year, a couple went over to ask more in-depth. Uh, Duffy, asked. they asked him about the kid they're recruiting who's over there. And he's like, yeah, you need to get this guy. He, he's really good. He's going to be one of the next ones in the wave to come along. And sure enough, now he's a Gator. I guess you never know where helps can come from on the recruiting trail, do you? You never do, man. It's uh, I didn't expect it to be from Emu Plains, Australia, <laughs> uh, but you know what? That's where it's coming from. So it's a little bit further away from Orlando, uh, where the towns are from. Yeah. Before we move on from our, our signing day conversation, we got to talk about the quarterbacks because while Florida did finally have an answer at that position this season for the first time in a while, uh, it doesn't mean that everything is settled moving forward, especially when you got guys that are very talented coming in that are going to push the guys that are already there. So tell us about uh, the latest guy that Florida found very, very close to home. You can never have too many good quarterbacks, and obviously Kyle Trask really blossomed for the Gators this year. Emory Jones continues to get better and plays a important role, but you know, Anthony Richardson's kind of a unique deal for Florida because it's been a long time since the Gators have signed a quarterback on scholarship who actually played high school ball here in Gainesville. And Anthony Richardson, you know, he's from Gainesville East Side High. You got to go back to Doug Johnson in the mid-90s to find the last time Florida has signed a local quarterback from within the city limits. And, you know, he's a prototypical kind of player that fits into what we've seen from Dan Mullen's offenses over the year over the years he's listed at 6'4 about 233 pounds uh his teammates have already raved about his arm uh, at practice in his first few days on campus he's very athletic uh you know a classic dual threat guy but you know he runs he passes but he's also very physical he's big and uh, certainly passes the eye test he doesn't look necessarily like a 18 year old kids. So, uh, that you, like I said, they've added an important piece there, uh, for the future. And, uh, again, it's just a, a very talented player to add at that position. Yeah. So obviously a lot of news around signing day and we're curious to see how that continues to shake out. So make sure to, to keep it locked on floodgators.com. Scott will have more on these guys again, as additional letters come trickling in as well. That's the place to go for all of the information. 
turning our attention to Gator basketball, uh, you know, it seems like every week, Chris, we chronicle this. It's it's up, it's down. Uh, this week was an up, and you know, for for Florida, it seems like some of their best performances of the year have come away from home, and their game against Providence up in Brooklyn was no exception. Yeah, and, and away from home, you you can streamline it a little more to say neutral sites because uh, uh, Florida's two true road games have both been losses. They haven't shot the ball particularly well in either one of those, but um, they have played now uh, four neutral site games, and they've won all four of those. Um, and, and you mentioned up and down, up and down, and uh, obviously the Butler game when we talked last week was was certainly a down. They didn't, you know, since what was it, six of twenty six from the three point line, a fourteen point loss uh, to a team at the time that was undefeated. And yet the team has won five of six. That's since the UConn game. Obviously, that includes the uh, run through the Charleston Classic. Something Mike White said in his press briefing last week, something I've written about now, I've referenced it twice in, in, in my stories uh, the last few days. Uh, he made the point to the uh, to the local press, and I, I don't think it was intent to be sarcastic at all, uh, but, I mean, as, as John Gruden would say, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a little deep and philosophical here. Sometimes basketball is as simple as whether or not the ball goes in the basket. And um, you go to uh, Brooklyn, and you shoot almost 51% as a team. You shoot 45% from the three-point line. You win by 32 points. There's a, there's correlation there, I think, Adam. And I'm just looking at the statistics uh, during the last six games. And again, Florida's won five of them. Uh, they haven't shot worse than 43% in any of those games, whereas in the first uh, – they didn't shoot – 43% in any of the first four games when, when they when they really didn't look very good. The next correlation in that is um, something Mike White went public with at the last uh, meeting with media. He's, he junked the entire offense that they've been uh, running since July, since these guys got on campus in the middle of July uh, in, in favor of some stuff with, that's a little more structured. Um, he was trying to give them uh, some freedom in some of the stuff they were doing and these young guys just weren't used to that and, and didn't respond well to it in, uh, you know, when the bullets were flying. Andrew Nemard was really good against Providence. Uh, it's 83-51 victory. Led basically the entire game. It was tied once, I think. Uh, they had a double-digit lead, I think, for the last, say, I want to say 29 minutes of the game, if not more than that. Uh, Andrew Andrew was a plus 26 in the plus-minus. Seven assists. You know he had three turns. He only scored nine points, but his pace for the game was very, very good. Um, people are going to talk about Providence. Providence did not play well in this game. They look a little, uh, a little dysfunctional. Um, I mean, they made Florida look cohesive, uh, you know. So, and they they certainly looked a little dysfunctional out there. My, my goodness gracious, they shot twenty eight percent for the game. Ouch. One, they missed seventeen of eighteen shots from the three point line. Um, not all that was Florida's defense, but we do got to say this was Florida's best basketball game. Keontae Johnson, a second uh, double-double of the season, 19 points, 10 rebounds. And one of the things that we that we got to see uh, that we had not really seen, we got to see an aggressive Trey man. He's the most gifted scorer on the team. Sometimes some of the stuff he does in practice is, whoa. Uh, he had 13 points. Uh, he drew six fouls. Uh, that's a testament to him, you know, driving the basket or being a little more aggressive. He's four of eight from the floor. Uh, uh, he was a plus 22. Just a good all-around game from him and also from Quez Glover, who came off the bench, uh, scored 10 points, hit a couple threes, ran the offense, didn't turn the ball over. I mean, going into the game, he had four assists to 12 turnovers. Not really ideal for a point guard, even a freshman. But, I mean, the all-encompassing, uh, really good performance. I, I, when we got off the plane, 
early uh, Wednesday morning, I walked Mike, Mike White and I were walking to the car. I go, well, you know, who was really, really good? He goes, he goes, really, we got something from everybody. And when you can say that after a basketball game, especially away from home, um, uh, you really, really feel good about yourself. So during this kind of awkward stretch here, the games are broken up a lot. One more for Florida before they get to the Christmas break. And that's, as you noted last week, Chris, against a really good Utah State team down in Sunrise. Yeah, and you, you always got to be uh, leery of these games right before Christmas. Uh, Billy Diamond hated them. Um, I mean, he, uh, historically, I mean, Florida lost uh, to South Alabama right before Christmas break, lost to, uh, I want to say, Jacksonville lost a game. And again, when this when Billy D was their coach, um, it, it's it's just a hard time of the year to know for sure that your guys are focused in because, you know, they want to go home and they want to they take a few days off or what have you. Uh this is a good Utah State team, Adam. I mean, they return uh, some guys from a team last year that won 28 games. Uh, you may recall uh, Nevada had a pretty damn good year last year, uh, uh, was, was a, a top 10, 12 team for most of the year. Florida ended up, of course, beating them in the NCAA tournament. Well, Utah State won that league, tied, that, tied Nevada for that league championship, the Mountain West, and won the Mountain West Conference tournament on their way to winning 28 games last season. So um, this is a good basketball team. They're 11-2. and two. Earlier this year, they beat LSU in Jamaica. So we know LSU is a team that has a chance to contend for the SEC. So this is just one of those kind of weird games. It's down in South Florida. The atmosphere is not going to be great. It never is down there, even though it's you're, you're in the middle of, uh, you know, th- there's plenty of Gators down in South Florida. Not a lot of them uh, get jacked up to go to Sunrise and watch uh, college basketball in December in a hockey arena. So um, uh, you bust down. So it's, you know, you know, guys can get a little cranky on the way down or what have you. And again, <laughs> Yeah, you're three days. You're three days from Christmas. I mean, it, some of the guys after the game they stay down there and then fly home to wherever they're going home from from down there. They don't all bust back because you literally after the game's over, you're on break. So uh, it'll be important for Florida to build on this, and this this is a chance for a, a nice neutral site win, quad one potential win for that postseason resume. Um, and you just got to take advantage of those things, especially when you let one get away earlier in the year in that poor game against FSU. You want to build that momentum. Again, SEC season starts January 4th. There's one more game after that, December 28th, at home against Long Beach. But Florida can build that momentum. You know, take care of business against Utah State. Take care of business against Long Beach. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you're 9-3 and three going into your conference season, and you got your momentum. You've, you've strung together seven wins in eight games. Uh, your offense is starting to flow a little bit better with the changes that you've made. And you certainly, if you can get this one this weekend, feel better about yourself going over holiday break and maybe come back with a little more bounce in your step. So that's what's going on with basketball. And of course, we'll talk about that Utah State game on our bowl preview show next week. But right now, I want to turn our attention to PAT. It is the holiday season. It's all about giving and receiving gifts. Uh, I prefer receiving gifts. I'm not very good at giving them. It's just hard to come up with good ideas. So I, I worry that some of the gifts I've given may be on this list for the wrong reasons. But I want to know from you guys the best and the worst holiday gifts you have ever received. And if it's bad, just make sure to tell the person who gave it to you not to listen to this podcast. This may come as a surprise. Uh, I went to college and I was an education major. And I actually uh, was teaching uh, elementary school as a, as a teacher's aide. Uh, when I was in college, when I decided I wanted to uh, uh, kind of change over to journalism. And that's when I got my uh, Smith Corona electric typewriter. It's not very sexy sounding. No, it's not. But my Smith Corona typewriter, I made hay of that. And that really put me through school. And it also, I typed, I was a really good typer. 
really fast, helping me write papers and, and writing stories and journalism papers through school. But I also type papers uh, uh, in my dorm and in my apartment uh, and for my friends and got paid for it. And I kept that thing in its case. It was in our attic uh, until, you know, one of our last uh, uh, Marie Conlon probably purges or something. I thanked it for its service and, <laughs> and, and, and sent it on. So I would think that's one of my best. Uh, if I have to think about worst, my goodness gracious, um, my aunt gave me a couple button-down polyester design shirts or something. Oh, no. I want to say it. Yeah, it was something that I don't even know that John Travolta would have worn <laughs> to the disco uh, back then. But that that comes to mind. It's funny. Our family, we we were pretty open about whether gifts were good or bad. We had this like toy stun gun. I would make this noise. Woo, 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 woo. You, and when you gave someone in my our family, whether it was my dad or my mom or my brother, if you, you gave someone a bad gift, they'd like wave and you have to give them the stun gun. They'd point the stun gun at the bad gift and, and zap it. So um, I, I, that was kind of a weird tradition because uh, it, se- it seemed so um, unappreciative. But we thought we thought that was kind of funny thing. I do remember zapping some gifts, but I remember zapping the hell out of those polyester shirts. But my aunt, my aunt wasn't there to see it, but that's okay. Bless her heart. <laughs> Well, let's start with the good. I mean, and it, maybe this will show why I do what I do, but one of the best Christmas gifts I ever remember getting, I was like nine years old, and I, I, I was just starting to really get into sports. And the, my dad, I remember, got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated when Sports Illustrated was something entirely different than we know it today. Uh, and you say, well, you say, well, you're telling me a magazine subscription is the best Christmas gift you ever got? Uh, yeah, yeah, because back then I remember it. It wasn't just the magazine. It was, it was like this package, and I think it had a jacket and a shirt. And, and you know what, Adam? I think I subscribed to it for the next thirty some years. Uh, so that that's one great gift I had. That that's a good one. So what's what's your worst? Well, my worst is probably you know I remember getting socks always sucks for Christmas, <laughs> right? But I remember one time getting some ugly socks. And I put them on, and they had a hole in them. No. And I'm like, yes, they did, man. They were new too. They were straight out of a package, and so I ripped the package open and put, you know, just try them out. I remember the socks had a hole in them. That's one I haven't yet. I never let my uh, my mom live down because, uh, you know, she probably took a lot of time to find those socks and buy them. But they were ugly socks, man. It doesn't seem to have a lot of excitement value. No, no, it's uh, it's very true. Um, but great answers from both of you guys. A lot of insight in helping people determine what they should uh, and should not get for people if they're out trying to uh, secure some last-minute gifts. But you guys are always providing gifts at floorgators.com, the gift of information, the gift of great writing. I also encourage people to follow you on Twitter, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next week for our bowl preview. All right, Adam. Thanks a lot, buddy. Seasons greetings, Adams. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.